And I invite you this morning to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is our second to last sermon uh, by my plan in 2 Corinthians. Uh, we'll read verses 11 through 21. I might actually go in a little bit into chapter 13, even though we'll talk about that next week. As you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, this was another hard sermon to write. Uh, but unlike last week, it, it isn't because it contains a truth that I've been trying to avoid. It's because it contains truths about an emotional topic that I'd rather not think about. Uh, this isn't a trigger warning necessarily, but I do think you're probably going to have a very similar response. Because in our passage, Paul faces the reality that people we deeply love don't always repent of their sins. In fact, sometimes those unrepentant sins are dangerous, not just to themselves, but to others and to the reputation of Jesus in the world. And because of that danger, it looks like there's going to need to be some kind or some form of a parting of ways, whether through some kind of church discipline or more commonly from them walking away from the faith and walking away from us and exiting our lives, at least for a season. This isn't something we like to think about. It's not something we want to believe can happen, and yet we know that it does. We've experienced it personally. We've experienced it as a church. We know it's necessary, but it breaks our hearts. And it causes confusion, doesn't it? How did it get this way? How do we know we're at a point where maybe we need to part ways? How do we part ways in a manner that pleases Jesus and leaves the doorway of repentance and reconciliation open and then, of course, what am I supposed to do with my broken heart? As you can see, those questions will be our points. And again, this Sunday sermon's not going to be long, but I hope it's helpful. I, I really want to do a good job this morning because this is just a part of walking with Christ. This side of glory, this is a normal part of the Christian life. And I don't mean to say that it's a common thing, but it is something that happens and we need to know how to handle it maturely and we need to also learn how to discern the spirit's presence and the power of the gospel in an event that's very emotionally difficult so pray for me uh, and after we read our passage i'll pray for us and then we'll reflect on how to deal with unrepentant sin in the body of christ second corinthians chapter 2 starting in verse 11 let's hear god's word Paul says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what way were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? 
Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may not find me as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray that he would write it on our hearts. Father, thank you this morning that you have given us your word to instruct us and to teach us how to follow you in very difficult circumstances. Father, it is the desire of our hearts to mature in the faith and to face difficult things with confidence in you and with understanding of how to do it in a way which pleases you and to see the way in which uh, you are working in um, relationships that can be confusing. Father, we pray that you would do all of this now by sending us your spirit to give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, and minds to understand your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and may the meditations of all of our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may they all now be pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Before we jump into our first question, I want you to accurately feel Paul's fear. In verse 20, Paul says, For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. I hope one of the things that's been clear throughout this letter is that Paul and the Corinthians had enjoyed a deep and wonderful relationship together. I mean, yes, it had its ups and downs, but it's had this powerful sense of love and affection, even joy in the middle of very difficult things. But as we'll talk about more in a second, that relationship has been worn down by sin and distrust and fear and idolatry. And now there's a real chance that Paul and some within the Corinthian church are going to have to part ways because of unrepentant sin. And there's a real chance that the majority or at least a sizable portion of the Corinthian church is not going to like the way that's going to take shape. Which is why we hear Paul say, He's afraid that he will find them not as he wishes and that they will find him not as they wish. It isn't simply, you see, that Paul is afraid that he'll find sin and that they'll find that he's ready to be strict with them. I mean, certainly that's a part of it. But his fear is deeper than that. It's that this relationship will become cold and distant and changed for the worse. When I was in grade school, I had a good friend. Uh, when I moved closer to where he lived from sixth grade until eighth grade, we hung out most days after school. 
well into the evening. So from 3.15 when the bell rang until 8, 9 o'clock at night. Uh, we hung out after school. We hung out most days in the summer from anywhere between like 9 a.m. to 9 o'clock at night. I mean, this was a, we were very close. We spent a lot of time together. And then one summer, my friend decided that he wanted to hang out with a group of wannabe gang members instead of me. And at the end of the summer, that summer, we were getting ready to go into ninth grade and we ran into each other as he was biking down my block. And it was a sad, hard experience because over the three months of that summer, he had become a different person, interested in different things, things that would be associated with gangs. And as we talked, it became clear that he didn't like who I was anymore and that I didn't like who he had become. And I remember standing at the bottom of my driveway, he and I looking at each other, silently realizing that the friendship we had had for years was gone because of the choices he had made over one summer. And that while potentially there would be some kind of relationship in the future, the one that we had was dead and could only really be recovered through the resurrecting power of Jesus. That's what Paul is afraid he'll find. He's afraid he's going to get there and that because of their choices, because of their commitment to the abusive super apostles like we've talked about, and because of their fear of being hurt and their loyalty to their chosen tribe within the church, and then because of Paul's own commitment to Jesus and having all the people of God be one and of walking by faith and of making sacrifices in order to follow Christ, that they will look at each other and they will find each other not as they wish, and that their relationship that they have had for years will be broken or even dead. I think we've all had that fear at some time or another, and I'm betting we've all had that fear realized at some time or another. And the sad reality is, my friends, that because everyone in the church is a sinner, this is surprising to all of you, I know, uh, and because everyone in the church has relationships with other people who are also sinners, this is the kind of thing that can happen. And that's what's happening here. Uh, we've talked about how we've got here in detail throughout the series. Most of you could probably preach that part of the sermon better than I can. So I'll just direct you to the earlier chapters and our sermon archive for the details. But suffice, suffice it to say, just generally, we got here because a sizable portion of the Corinthian church chose something other than Jesus as their identity, sought someone other than Jesus as their helper, and worshiped someone other than Jesus as their savior. In short, idolatry. And idolatry always leads to division and to sin. Or as Paul says in verse 20, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And by the way, if that is something that you find characterizing your life more than not, I guarantee you that at the heart of that is an idol you are worshiping instead of Jesus. And that was what's happening here. And then from here, I think we can quickly address our next question, which is how do we know that we're at a point where we need to part ways? How do we know that we can no longer walk side by side in joyful Christian fellowship? The reason we're all here at church is because we all believe in Jesus. We all believe in the free and full forgiveness of sinners. 
We believe and we've experienced the power of Jesus to forgive and to renew and to reconcile sinners like you and me to himself and to each other. Right? The church is full of true stories of enemies made family in Christ, of people crushed by guilt that are freed by his grace. That's the Christian story. I was broken and Jesus healed me. I was hurt and Jesus comforted me. I was lost and Jesus found me. I was blind and Jesus made me see. All I heard was my heart telling me that I'm a failure and don't deserve love. And then I heard the voice of Jesus say that he loved me before the foundation of the world, that he has fixed my failures and that in him I am complete and whole and presentable before God in beauty and in glory. We all have stories about stepping out in faith into the storms of life, trusting in Jesus to bring forgiveness to our bitterness, reconciliation to our brokenness, peace to our anxieties, and we found ourselves like Peter Peter standing on the waves and going, how did I get here? And like Peter, we all have stories of us sinking into the waves of sin and doubt and of Jesus pulling us back up again. That's the power of the gospel. And I say all of that because when there's a situation in the church or in our lives where people who are sinning unrepentantly, what we want most for them is to find or to rediscover that powerful recreating freedom of the gospel that we are given when we repent and trust in Jesus. And because of that, none of us, if we are healthy Christians, want any form of separation from those who are sinning unrepentantly. We don't want them to feel like we've given up on them. We don't want them to feel like Jesus has given up on them. We don't want there to be any question about the power of Jesus' gospel to save them. And we don't want to deny them the opportunity to meet Jesus in the gospel, which is what makes the question so emotionally fraught. And then, of course, to top it off, we also don't want to admit that the fruit of life which Jesus gives us in the gospel would be willingly and knowingly rejected for the living death that sin brings by people that we love. To part ways in any sense, to have any kind of reshaping of the relationship, can seem like we're giving up on the gospel that we believe, and yet we know, because God reveals it in our passage, and in other biblical texts, that this can happen, and that even mysteriously, it can be used for the good of the gospel in everyone's life, including the ones who want to walk away from the faith. So the question is, how do we decide when to part ways? Here's the truth. Jesus doesn't give us a clear-cut answer. You can't find anywhere in the Bible where God says, three months, give it three months, and then you're done, or Six years, seven, eight, give it a long time. And that's why you have different answers to this question within Paul's own ministry. So as we've seen throughout our series, and as you see in our passage, Paul has put in a tremendous amount of time. He's had two visits, and he's getting ready to make his third visit. That's verse 14, and also the beginning of chapter 13. He's written at least three letters, maybe four, maybe five. There's debate in the scholarly community of how many letters Paul exactly has written. He sent Titus and other pastors to them on a couple of different occasions. That's verses 17 and 18. We're talking years 
of ministry, hours and months of discipleship. And on top of that, he's even spared them the sacrifices necessary to financially partner with Jesus in the building up of his kingdom. That's verses 13 to 19. We've talked about all this. Paul has spent years and years dealing with this community that he loves. But that's not the case with the Galatian church. When you read his letter to the Galatians, he's not going to spend years dealing with them. They don't get multiple pastoral visits. They don't get multiple letters. If you read Galatians, it seems like they have maybe a few weeks or a couple months to repent. He doesn't give a timeline, but that's what it seems like. There is a urgency. Fix it now. They don't get years. The Corinthians get years. So all this to say then, how do you know when it's time to part ways? It's not something you can figure out by measuring and quantifying and data analysis. You can't take a survey, collate the answers, and come up with a solution. No, it's something that's discerned from prayerfully walking with Jesus. And can I just add, this is what makes being a pastor and an elder so hard because you can't apply formulas to people. You can only sit back and prayerfully ask Jesus, what are you doing? And then say, how can I join you? And then pray that you don't get in the way if such a thing is possible. Now I can hear your brains. This is a pastoral gift. And in your brains, you're thinking, Pastor Matt, that is a deeply dissatisfying answer. I don't like it. Right. And if you're like me, you don't like it because it means you actually have to walk by faith and not by sight. And because it means you could be wrong and you could be hated for a wrong decision. And it means you could be right and be hated for it because you can't prove that you're right. Because it means that you actually have to entrust yourself and the church and the people you love into Jesus' hands and not your own strength or your own power. Jesus has set up a situation where we all have to pray and wait and trust that he can and does work in and around and through us in his own time and in his own way, and that ultimately we are all in his hands and not our own and that we have to rest in his promise that no one can take his sheep from his hand. Or as Paul says so beautifully in chapter 1, we have to learn to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So let's say we get there. Let's say we've prayed, we've talked, we've sought advice, we've prayed again. And let's say that we've spent months or years trying to help them to repent of sin. And let's also say uh, like in the case of the Corinthians, that this unrepentant sin is actively hurting other people. Right, that list of sins in verse 20, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. Those are not private sins. Those are public sins. These are sins that are tearing at the actual fabric of unity, at fellowship in the church. And on top of that, as we've seen throughout our series, they're denying forgiveness and reconciliation to repentant sinners. You know, the great irony here is that their unrepentant sin within the Corinthian church is actually preventing repentant sinners from experiencing the blessings of repentance. 
and their unrepentant sin is damaging the reputation of Jesus. In verse 21, Paul says that he knows it's possible that those who sinned earlier, I'm, I'm reading it here, and may not have repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. And that's a reference to sins Paul started dealing with back in years early in 1 Corinthians that were so outrageous that Paul can say, even the unbelieving pagans are looking at you guys and going, wow, Jesus is okay with that sin? That's crazy. So that, that's the situation. The sins are hurting people. They're damaging Christ's reputation. And after years of pleading in pastoral ministry, very little, if anything, has actually changed. And Paul has discerned it's time to part ways if it won't change. So how do you do that? How do we do that in a way that pleases Jesus and that leaves the doorway of repentance and reconciliation open? Well, the way Paul does that here is by trying to help them discern the love and presence of Christ in their lives, to help them discern, to see, to recognize the presence of Christ's love in their life. So first, Paul wants them to see Christ's love in their life as it's come to them through himself and the church. So in verse 15, Paul says, and I'm reading here, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Isn't that a beautiful verse? I love that verse. It's one of my favorites. He says this after reminding them that they have never, that he has never asked them to help physically care for him because those needs were always met by himself through his own personal labor or, and most often, through the rest of the churches, financing Paul's ministry to this congregation that was broken by sin. And Paul's point is, do you see that I and the church love you for you? We aren't interested in your money. We haven't taken your money. We aren't interested in your prestige or your political connections. We are interested in you and in a relationship with Jesus, and we have sacrificed for you. This has been proven by our actions, and it's being proven again now. We are, we have been poured, and we are pouring ourselves out for you. We give you our time for free. We pray for you. We send pastors at our expense across the country for you. We worry about you. We keep showing up to these meetings, even though our meetings come at a fairly high emotional and spiritual cost to us. We bear that cost because we love you. We spend and are spent for you. And if you're going to walk away from Christ, and if we're going to have to part ways we aren't going to let you leave under the impression that we have not loved you in Christ's name and that Christ has not loved you through us. Do you see the love of Christ that's been poured out to you through us? It is essentially how Paul ends this section. Not only that, though, Paul says, we also want you to know that ultimately all of this has been for your relationship with Christ. In verse 19, Paul says, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. When Paul talks about speaking in the sight of God, he's drawing from this uh, powerful Old Testament idea that we live before God's face, which doesn't simply mean that God sees us. 
It does mean that, but it also means that God responds to how we speak and to how we live. He can smile when we're faithful. He can frown when we're sinful. He can weep when we weep, and he rejoices when we rejoice. See, to live before God's face in the Bible means that God sees and responds to our life together. And essentially, Paul is saying, have you forgotten that our relationship is entirely built around Jesus and that it's Jesus we're trying to please when we talk to each other and live with each other? I mean, yes, obviously, you repenting of sin, Paul is saying, would stop me from being hurt. But more profoundly and more importantly, you repenting of sin would stop damaging your relationship to Jesus and would bring you closer to him. You see, as Paul is preparing his heart for what he fears will be a parting of ways, he's going to end by reminding them that when they choose sin and false teachers, they aren't simply choosing to leave Paul and the rest of the congregation and the rest of the churches. They're choosing to leave Jesus. And they are rejecting the one whose sacrificial, self-giving love was poured out on them on the cross and then poured out to them by the churches through the Spirit. And by recognizing that while there is personal pain, the issue is more uh, than personal. It's eternal. It's not ultimately about us, Paul is saying, but about them and Jesus. And by doing that, that then lets Paul and it would let us step away not with anger at the affront to our pride at how dare they reject all that I've given them, but to step away with tears and also with the door of hope open because we follow the God of the resurrection. And just because a relationship dies for now doesn't mean that it can't be reborn later right? But that doesn't mean that a death hasn't occurred. And that leads us to our final question. In short, what do I do with my broken heart? At the end of our passage, Paul says something that I think is really important for us to reflect on. I think maybe even especially just more broadly in light of everything that's happened over the last couple of years. Paul says, verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented. Paul talks here about mourning his loss. Part of Christian maturity is learning how to grieve loss and change well. That's why I said, I think generally speaking, we could kind of apply the last two years and kind of broadly reflect on this section. Part of Christian maturity is learning how to grieve change and loss well. I know there's a number of Christian traditions that believe that grieving and mourning are something Christians should not do. Uh, And that is so surprising to me because in the Bible, God grieves and God mourns, and Jesus grieves, and Jesus mourns, and Paul says he expects to mourn and to grieve, which tells me that the proper response to something as heartbreaking as someone leaving the faith is mourning. 
what is mourning? Uh, we're too far into our time to look anything at it in anything like depth today. Uh, we might look at a few psalms about it later, but for today, we can just say two quick biblical things. First, mourning, this is the profound kind of insights that you pay me to tell you. Mourning means being sad. It means being sad, especially with others. Being sad with God. It's crying and experiencing heartache together. That's part of it. It's a communal acknowledgement that something terrible and sad has happened and joining together with God and before God's face and crying about it with each other. Here's the other part about that this is, that's important though. Mourning is also giving the person or the persons you're mourning over to God. Whether we're mourning the death of someone we love or someone we love leaves the faith, what we're doing is saying, Jesus, help me to entrust them to your mercy and to your goodness, which is higher than the heavens, more powerful than hell, more able than my abilities. Help me to let them leave my ability to help them with the confidence that they have never and can never have left your ability. Help me to trust that your love for them is greater and more powerful than my love. Help me to trust that your timing is not my timing and that you do all things well, even if I may not live to see the end of the things that you are doing. That's what Paul is expecting to do. He's expecting to have to be sad with Jesus and his people and then to entrust the people who are going to leave the faith to Jesus and by faith to try to find contentment in Jesus' timing and in his ways in their life together. That's how mature Christians handle this kind of situation. We don't stick our heads in the sand. We don't rage, rage against the dying of the light. We acknowledge our fear. I am afraid that this is what's going to happen. We prayerfully and communally work to discern if the time has come where they're going to walk away, whether to let that happen or not. We bear witness to the love of Christ that they have received and of the presence of Jesus in their lives and the way in which it continues to be present in their lives. And then if we leave, they leave, we mourn together. We're sad together. We cry together. And then we entrust them to Jesus together knowing that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will not fail to raise even one of his people. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, it's, it's hard to think about people leaving the faith. It's hard to think that there are times when we might have to part ways with people we love. We grieve that it's true, and we know that you grieve that it's true, but we thank you that your grief is not like ours because your grief is connected to your mercy and your redemptive grace and your perfect wisdom and your timing and your omnipotence. So please, when we encounter these situations, give us the ability to entrust ourselves and each other to you. Give us honest hearts that pour themselves out to you 
Give us grace to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus that remains open to us all. And give us patience as we prayerfully wait on you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.